When I get old and I'm losing my hair Many years from now Will you still be sending me valentines Birthday greetings, bottles of wine Will you still choose me? Will you still choose me? When I'm 64 Hello! Welcome to Atari Bites, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 64. Thanks for listening. See? See what I did there? The clever little tie-in with 64. Man, I, I hope I don't have to send whoever owns the Beatles catalog some money now. Anyway, moving on. How you been, everybody? We're doing another one. Recording on a Monday night this time, so I have wine instead of coffee. So, you know, who knows what may happen. On the other hand, it is only like a $7 bottle of wine. So, whatever it is that's going to happen isn't going to be that exciting. But that's after the show. Right now, we have a jam-packed exciting show. So, let's get on to it. Or, into it. Whatever. Not a lot of news this week. On... Friday, March 31st, it is, uh, I guess I should say, it is Monday, April 3rd, as I record this, but on the last Friday, for me anyway, the world was rocked. Rocked, I tell you. Uh, No, not because Trump did something weird, but because the flow of traffic, the flow of commerce, really, uh, as we know it, ground to a halt. The highways were littered with wreckage. Everything was aflame because out of nowhere, Google Maps all of a sudden decided to let Miss Pac-Man take over the app for, I don't know when it actually started Friday afternoon, but for at some point, sort of unannounced Friday afternoon, Google Maps started letting you play Miss Pac-Man, sorry, Ms. Pac-Man on your street on Google Maps. It was very cool and very weird. So you had Ms. Pac-Man and the ghosts and the pellets and everything on a grid, but instead of the typical, you know, Pac-Man grid, you had, it was whatever map you had on Google Maps. And you would go along and you would, you would play the game just like you would normally play Ms. Pac-Man. It was very cool. Uh, it was just kind of a fun little thing Google did. Like I said, I don't know why Google Maps did this. I didn't question it. I just played. Got lost on my way home three times crash twice. Totally worth it. Um, I like how Google does stuff like that. You know, like, of course, on the search engine page, whenever there's a special event or a holiday or something, they'll put a fun little, often pull a fun little scene or a game or something. I remember when uh, Doctor Who had its 50th anniversary for like a week or so. They had a little Doctor Who game. Uh, Just a simple little rudimentary game that I still maintain actually is the funnest Doctor Who game that I've ever played. So, yeah, you know, hats off to you, Google. You're taking over the world, so we might as well, you know, appreciate what you're doing. Not really under the other news. It occurs to me as I'm I'm looking at my notes here, it's been just about a year now, almost, that we were told we were going to get Missile Command and Centipede movies from Atari. They were, you know, they linked up with a production company. I was expecting any day we'd start hearing news about, you know, scripts and, yeah. You know, Eventually, casting choices and maybe a little bit of detail about what the plots were going to be and some idea when the movies were going to come out. It's been nothing but crickets, as far as I can tell, uh, since the initial announcement in like May of 2016. Which all, of course, simply means that I still have a shot at writing the scripts. I haven't forgotten Atari. I'm still available. 
I cleared my schedule. I have done nothing for almost a year except this podcast and sitting by the phone waiting for uh, you to tweet at me or call me or send me an email, something, because I am ready to start working on these movies. But in the meantime, duty calls. This week's duty, I mean this week's game, is Flag Capture. 1978 Atari game, one of the original 11, you know, 11 games released. So we're going back a ways for this one. For Flag Capture, let's take a look at how you play this thing. It's a pretty simple game. I haven't played it a little bit now, but it has like a book-length manual. So we'll just kind of skim the highlights here a little bit. Uh, using the joystick controller for this one, it is really intended as a two-player game. There are ten uh, games on the cartridge altogether. Seven of them are two-player games. Uh, you know, made distinct from each other by some of them the flag is stationary you know, the flag that you're trying to capture is stationary and some of them the, the flag moves around the board randomly to different places some of the variations there's a wall and you can't basically wrap around uh, the board uh, and in other variations you can um, but there are three games 8, 9, and 10 uh, timed one player games you get 75 seconds basically to find as many flags as you can and since I'm all by myself uh, I played one of the timed uh, one-player variations for the field report tonight. Controller action. Each player controls an explorer. Your object is to find the flag using your explorer. Left controller play, the left controller player's explorer starts in the upper left corner square. The right controller player's explorer starts in the lower right corner square. When you play the one-player version, you start in the upper left corner. Explorers can, explorers can move from square to square. During your turn, you can move your explorer to any square position. To move the explorer up or down the maze, move the joystick up or down, move the explorer right or left, move right or left, uh, and you get the idea. You can also move diagonally. Your explorer cannot move to or through a square occupied by an opponent's explorer. When you are satisfied with the position of your explorer, press the red controller button. Any of the following objects will appear on the square. A direction clue, uh, which is just an arrow basically, pointing you in the direction of the flag. A number clue uh, may appear, which will refer to the distance between your explorer and the flag. For example, if the number 2 appears, the flag is somewhere on the perimeter of a 2 square radius. Here are a few examples of number 2 clues. The shaded areas refer to the possible location of the flag. Here you go. Got it? Alright, memorize it. Okay. A bomb curses! A trap has been set and you fall for it. A bomb explodes under your explorer. Now begin again at the starting square. Sucker. Edit the sucker part. And the other possible square you might see is the flag. Good show. You found the flag. Exploring conditions. Every game is not the same. Each features different variations. For a dis- That's what not the same means. That's sort of redundant. If Sean is listening to this, he probably is really frustrated at that redundancy. For a description of these variations, continue reading. Two-player games. Free for all. Both players start moving their explorers across the maze simultaneously. No need to take turns. Pay attention to your opponent's clues if you can. The first player to find the flag scores a point. Double two-player. Each player takes a turn to move his explorer and uncover a clue. The first player to find the flag scores one point. Solo two-player. In these games, one player continues to take turns until the flag is found. Then it's the opponent's turn to find the flag. The object is to score the lowest number of points. A player scores one point each time he pushes the controller button and receives a clue. So you're automatically going to score a point every time you get a clue. I'm not sure I understand that. I think I'd have to try it. One-player games. One player timed. The clock at the top of the screen times out at 75 seconds. That's how much time you have to find the flag as many times as possible. 
Once you find a flag, start over again. Stationary flag. No surprises here. The location of the flag remains the same throughout the game. Just study the clues carefully. Moving flag. Fast thinking and a little luck are the secrets to finding a moving flag. Each time a player takes a turn without finding the flag, the flag moves one square. The flag continues to move in the same direction until a player finds it. The flag moves in a vertical, horizontal, or diagonal straight line. For example, after two turns are taken, the flag is moved in a diagonal straight line from point A to point C. Two squares. Wrap around. Explorers. In all games, the explorers can move off the maze and appear on the opposite side. So does that give credence to the flat earth idea that's floating around the internet right now? I don't know. Sometimes I worry about society. Anyway, note that the vertical and diagonal explorer movement is the same as flag movement reviewed in the following section. I can't wait. Moving flag. The wraparound features can also apply to the moving flag. Some games will offer a moving flag with wraparound. There are three ways the flag's movement is controlled by wraparound. Horizontal, when the flag is moving in a horizontal straight line, it may eventually move off the screen. When this occurs, the flag reappears at the opposite side of the same screen, uh, the upside of the screen in the same row. Vertical, uh, same idea, except uh, vertically. Diagonal, the diagonal movement of the flag differs from the horizontal and vertical wraparounds. When the flag moves off the screen, imagine it, uh, imagine it moving one more square up and over. Remember this concept, and you will understand the diagonal patterns of movement. Wall. Games that feature moving flags can also feature a wall. The wall is an invisible boundary around the maze. When a moving flag makes contact with the wall, it will bounce into another square. The moving flag bounces at the same angle that it approached the wall. Scoring. A player scores one point for each flag he finds during free-for-all and double two-player games. The first player to score 15 points wins the game. During two-player solo games, each player scores the number of turns it takes to find the flag. For example, if a player needs six clues or turns to find the flag, his score is 6. The first player to score 75 points loses the game. In timed one-player games, the, game, the player scores one point for each time he finds the flag. He races against the clock to score as many points as possible in 75 seconds. In two-player games, the right player's score appears in the upper right play field corner. The left player's score appears in the upper left corner. In one-player games, the time appears in the upper right corner of the play field. The player uses the left controller and the score appears in the upper left playfield corner. Handicap. Difficulty switch. In two-player solo games, games where the players try to score the lowest number of points, a player scores one point for each flag when the difficulty is in the B position. In the A position, a player scores two points for each flag. In two-player free-for-all games, the moving action of a player's explorer is slowed down when the difficulty switch is in the A position. I have not actually tried the two-player version yet, so I can't speak to really how much different that is, but there you go. Alright, simple enough, right? Is this a pirate game? Feels to me like a pirate game. Right? You're, you're seeking the flags. The cover of the manual, and the box I assume too, I haven't seen the box actually, um, has some very pirate-looking dudes and a British flag, and a ship. These dudes are totally pirates. It's a pirate game, Pete said. Pieces of eight, and Polly want a cracker, and uh, walk the plank, and all that stuff. Strategy Wiki 
posted a thing about flag capture, noting that it was one of 11 Atari 2600 titles, part of the second wave of games released in 78. They compare it to a very early primitive Minesweeper. Then they go into excruciating detail about how to play. I'm looking at Encyclopedia Gamia, the gaming wiki. Uh, they don't really say a whole lot about it either. Um, I didn't really find a whole lot on the internet about flag capture. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't spend like a whole day trying to research it, but I kind of poked around a little bit. I don't know that it's a game that really needs a whole lot said about it, which is a problem for a podcast, but we will muddle through as best we can. So let's see what happens. After the break, we set sail, only to get hoisted on our own petard. And we like it. What do we want? Flags! When do we want them? Now! What do we want? Eggs! When do we... Did you say eggs? Yeah, it rhymed with flags. Sort of. Also, I'm kind of hungry. Also, you're kind of fired. Yeah, I saw that coming. So, I'm playing one of the one-player timed games. The little arrow's telling my little man to go diagonal. And now I'm two steps away. Booyah! Three, four, five. Ooh, got bombed. Fly Capture seems to be one of those games that's kind of like, uh, surround? Booyah. Um, not much to it. Boom. Um, but kind of a nice little diversion if you're looking to fill some time. can't even go seven from there, silly arrow. Yes! Wow, it's like I know all the cheat codes or something. Do Atari games have cheat codes? No, they're Easter eggs. Just timely for this time of year. Four, five, six, seven, eight. Three, four, five, six. Boom! That's how you do it, son. Five flags. Woo! One more flag and I'll have a theme park. Back to you in the studio. Remember the board game Stratego? Flag capture is kind of like that, only instead of a whole army with pieces of different rank that can move around in different ways to kind of vary things a little bit. This game, flag capture, is just you wandering largely directionless across the space hoping to find your prize without getting bombed. So, hey, maybe flag capture is more like one of us Atari nerds wandering through a flea market. The prize is a coveted in-box copy of Tapper that some old guy will let go for three bucks, not knowing what he's got. Getting bombed is what happens when you go home and play it, because you have to celebrate your great flea market find. Also screwing over an old man, but mostly celebrating the find. With expensive beer. The kind in the collectible tin bottles. Oh, hold on. I'm sorry, guys. This is really weird. There's got to be something wrong with my recording equipment here. Uh, can, can you guys hear that? There's a lot of interference. 
kind of a weird ghostly echo thing going. You know, I'm wondering if you guys, I'll, you know, I can try and clean it up, but you know, I'm wondering if you guys can hear that. It's almost like another podcast is crowding into my data stream. Hello. I'm Dr. Sheldon Cooper, and welcome to the premiere episode of Sheldon Cooper Presents Fun with Flags. Over the next 52 weeks, you and I are going to explore the dynamic world of vexillology. Hang on, Dr. C. What's vexillology? Vexillology is the study of flags. Cool. I think I just learned something. Did you have fun doing it? I'll say. Fun and information are two sides to this video podcast, not unlike the only two-sided state flag, Oregon. Oh, look. Hello, Mr. Beaver. In future episodes, we'll answer some burning questions. What's the only non-rectangular flag? What animal appears most often on flags? What animal appears second most often on flags? And more. Sweet! Why are you waving a white flag? I'm surrendering to fun. Today's episode of Fun with Flags is not fun, but it is important. Flags, you gotta know how to hold them, you gotta know how to fold them. Let's start by identifying the parts of our flag. This edge is the hoist, and it's used to carry the... Excuse me. Cut! Vexillology is the scientific study of the history, symbolism, and usage of flags or really an interest in flags in general. It comes from the Latin word vexillum for flag and the Greek suffix logia, study. The constitution of the International Federation of Vexillological Associations formally defines vexillology as the creation and development of a body of knowledge about flags of all types, their forms and functions, and of scientific theories and principles based on that knowledge. The person who studies flags is a vexillologist, Vexillography is the art of designing flags. One who does so is a vexillographer, and admirer of flags is a vexillophile. Wow, that's hard to say. Vexil, vexillophile. The study of vexillology was formalized by the U.S. scholar and student of flags, and we're assuming major, major party animal, Whitney Smith in 1957. He organized a bunch of flag organizations and meetings, including the first International Congress of Vexillology, the North American Vexillological Association, an International Federation of Vexillological Association, which we're going to guess is the only association that can beat up the International Federation of Trekkies. I'm just kidding. I don't know that that's actually what they're called, but I'm guessing it would be a pretty fair fight. The term was conceived in 1958 by Smith. It has historically and appropriately been considered a subdiscipline of heraldry. Well... We know that vexillology is a thing, people running around as a hobby, or as a scientific discipline, studying flags. We know Dr. Sheldon Cooper uh, is into studying flags. You know who else was into flags? Pirates. And who makes the meanest, bloodthirstiest pirates? Abandoned nerds collecting stuff. And who are the biggest nerds? Atari podcasters. Anyway, 
This week's story features a hardy band of pirates, the Jolliest Rogers, on a quest to add to their Jolly Roger collection. The Jolly Roger, of course, is the traditional English name for the flags flown to identify a pirate ship about to attack during the early 18th century. That is, the latter part of the Golden Age of Piracy. The flag most commonly identified as the Jolly Roger today is the skull and crossbones symbol on a black flag, and was used during the 1710s by a number of pirate captains, including Black Sam Bellamy, Edward England, and John Taylor. It went on to become the most commonly used pirate flag during the 1720s. Man, am I a nerd. Which means it's time for me to hoist the sails and man the five plot elements. Introduction, exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution, and denouement. All sailing into the harbor of good storytelling. Our story of the Jolliest Rogers opens like this. The Jolliest Rogers were the roughest, toughest band of pirates on the seven seas. Well, at the moment they were sort of mellow, coming down off a sugar hive resulting from one of their lot, Melvin, getting confused and seizing from the British Navy a huge cache of Jolly Ranchers, rather than the Jolly Roger flapping in the breeze over the yardarm, or wherever it is on the ship you usually fly the flag. The Jolliest Rogers usually just kept theirs in airtight display cases. In his time confined to quarters after this little misadventure, Melvin had been studying the navigation charts, specifically the path of the, the, the Jolliest Rogers' nemesis, the Trekkie Sea Dog. He was tracking the Sea Dog to see where it was headed. It was rumored that this band was even meaner, even bloodthirstier than the Jolliest Rogers. Worst of all, these pirates were nerdier. Instead of pocket protectors, they wore throwing stars that doubled as mechanical pencils. When they pedantically corrected other nerds' understanding of the Star Wars saga, all other nerds in the vicinity wept blood. As the jolliest Roger's ship, the Raspberry Pi, rounded the Straits of Gerps, Melvin flew up onto the deck and barged into the captain's latest D&D campaign. The captain glared at Melvin menacingly. She did not like interruptions. Captain Flora had once gutted a man just for offering her an inferior game controller at a video game tournament. Flora spoke through gritted teeth. This better be good, Captain Flora said. I was about to roll for fright check. You should be hoping you needn't do the same. Flora stood, towering over Melvin and her Doc Martens. Melvin wished he'd worn his Luke Cage tank top that showed off his wiry, real thin guns. But he'd worn the, what would Neil deGrasse Tyson say, hoodie instead. Melvin gulped and waved the navigation chart in the air. I know where the Trekkie Sea Dog is, he said. The first mate turned off the gaming podcast he'd been listening to. Aye, they be hoarding a ripe bounty in their hold, I hear. Well, where is it? Captain Flora said. Melvin let out an unmanly squeal and pointed. There, he shouted. The Trekkie Sea Dog, at just that moment, came over the horizon. Traditional jazz on vinyl, blurring from the ship's sound system. The flag of every amusement park in America flapping overhead, mocking the jolliest Rogers, who get nauseous on roller coasters. The two ships traded insults. Your retro game console sucks. Vinyl is fine, but reanimating the corpses of the musicians offers the best fidelity. Stand down and we'll board you and plunder your hold of all its vitamin water. Fire the bullet coffee cannons. This went on for hours. But then it was time for the congressional hearing live stream, so they called a truce. 
to go watch. A political junkie's heart beats in each of us, Captain Flora said. Also, lots of caffeine from the artisanal coffee. And what about those flags? Well, when the ship's store of Mountain Dew was drunk and the paleo snack stuffs were eaten, the captain of the Trekkie Sea Dog offered to share the ship's vast array of flags, country flags, restaurant flags, and even a selection of licensed manga character flags. But the jolliest Rogers just shrugged. Flags were old news, man. Flora's first mate had a tip that there was a treasure chest full of collectible action figures buried off the coast of Comic-Con Bay. The two ships pulled up anchor and set sail, the crew donning their lanyards and convention passes. A good nerd is a prepared nerd. Yo, ho, 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 wherever the good toys are we go. Yo, ho, 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 wherever the Batman cape does flow. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. You can email Atari Bytes at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com, and please do, I'd like to hear from you. Show notes, other episodes, and other links are found at ataribytes.libsyn.com. Find the show on Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iTunes, of course, among many other podcatchers, uh, including iHeartRadio, and on and on and on. When the option is offered, <clears throat> iTunes, do please leave a review. Scuttle the ship of inactivity, raise the flag for good reviews, and leave one on iTunes. Like the show on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Atari Bytes, or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. And also, do please consider supporting the show financially on our Patreon page, and by shopping at our Zazzle.com store, AB underscore pod underscore store. And also check out my other podcast. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown. A new episode drops on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bites. Now, change is scary. I want you to think about that before I tell you what we're doing next time on Atari Bites. It'll be okay. Just hold on tight. Clutch your controllers firmly. And buckle up, because we're doing something different next week. I recently had an opportunity to chat with Scott Rhodes. Some of you might know who Scott Rhodes is. Uh, in fact, I know at least one of you does, because I found out who he was through one of you. Scott, uh, back in the 80s, worked for Atari. And he has gone on to do many other things since then, uh, both with uh, te- mostly with technical manuals, some gaming, some not. Uh, and he does other kinds of writing as well. He's just a very interesting, very nice guy, and he was kind enough to take some time out of his day to talk to me, a guy he's never heard of, for my goofy little show. And I thought I would share that conversation with you next week on the podcast. So look for that next week. I'm really excited to have you hear it. It was fun to talk to Scott, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.
Oh, 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 oh,